Hi, I'm Derek Thompson. The news cycle these days is absolute madness. Pandemic, inflation, war, crypto, it's too much. That's why my podcast, Plain English, breaks down the news twice a week to be simple, memorable, and when it's appropriate, fun. No blather, no fluff, just the world's most important stories with fresh context and takeaways you'll actually remember. Listen to Plain English free on Spotify. media consumers welcome to the press box brian curtis of the ringer here along with david shoemaker and producer stefan anderson who is sitting in for erica today david we're going to talk about the heavily subtweeted new york times free speech editorial and say goodbye to nfl reporter john clayton in just a second but i want to begin by telling you about what happened on sports twitter on sunday oh exciting Everybody you follow on sports Twitter, David, was tweeting about Formula One on Sunday. <laughs> this is correct. Two thirds of people, you know, were tweeting about March Madness, but everyone, you know, was tweeting about Formula One. And I want us to take the opportunity to look at this moment, the moment when the American sports media officially embraced Formula One. I got three data points for you, David. Okay to prove that this is indeed the moment. Uh, number one, we have a new Ringer Formula One podcast hosted by Kevin Clark. I'm very familiar with it. I designed the logo. Yeah. Data point number two, you know Trey Kirby, longtime NBA podcaster. Yeah. He is now doing season two of a Formula One podcast called No Breaks. So NBA podcast to Formula One podcast. That is, that is, you know, to me, again, I don't know if there was a, you know, Premier League Club podcast and maybe a cooking show podcast built in there, but these are the new stations of the cross. Again, also appeared on the Masked Man show. He's, it's a, yes, it's a, it, Trey's a great guy. This is an incredible trajectory. And data point number three, kind of random, but I saw Michelle Beadle tweeting about Formula One on Sunday. And then I was kind of poking around and I found actor David Allen Greer of In Living Color fame tweeting at Michelle Beadle about Formula One. <laughs> That's a so we've arrived. We're here. The moment is upon us. And I think can, the I, fun can, I, can I just throw in a fourth data point since sure. we're just talking about spurious, spurious things or random things you found online? My day actually began today with my wife who does not work in the sports world or the entertainment world or anything getting on a zoom call and the first word out of her boss's mouth was did everybody watch the f the formula one race this what week? see no nobody had watched it at least the one that i heard <laughs> on the call but, Pro but probably telling right but if bosses are opening meetings that way i think that's significant person who is newly into formula one assuming everyone is mm -hmm. probably something telling about that it's really funny looking at twitter because I feel everyone was right at the point where they were deciding, do I ironically tweet about the fact that I've been a Formula One fan and follower for about 10 minutes? You know, like, ah, mm -hmm. oh, I've been a McLaren guy all my life. Ha ha ha. Or, or David, do they cross the threshold where they can now just do straight Formula One analysis like they would for the NBA or NFL? It's really hard. It's, well, I think, I think to answer your question, 
you can have, you know, you can straddle that fence pretty easily, right? You just get mm-hmm. one or two kind of self-deprecating tweets out there, and then you kind of open yourself up to do more serious tweets with, you know, uh, the, with it couched in a sort of self-deprecating sort of light. I, 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 it's weird. It's it's an interesting spot. And I think that one of the things that sort of gets me is that I know that we've talked about this before, but just in general discourse on Twitter, when it comes to sports, is elevated to such a high degree. And I'm not, and you know, all you know, everybody can make a joke, but like it's to be a writer online about a, you know, a sport in the current in the modern era is really like paralyzing at times, right? I mean, you can't even if that's your area of expertise, you can't you're there are so many Twitter eggs out there that somehow have a better grasp of stats and historical information or whatever than you do that you could just feel like like what am i even doing here but so so the the idea of like taking on a new sport one that you know full well you know has its historians and adherents and everything else it's 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 a bold move but the formula one sort of new to everybody right i mean it's it's at least to the to the the audience when you talk about everybody you know on twitter is tweeting about it the conversations that the people are having with people that they quote unquote know it, that's largely under it, it amongst an audience that is relatively new to the sport relatively new to the sport a lot of americans right who may not have really exactly. tuned in very much and how do we all get here well it was easy formula one had the greatest possible rollout or reboot or whatever you want to call it in america through this drive to survive reality show on netflix which mm-hmm. is co-produced by formula one itself Fourth season came out two weeks ago. It started back in 2019. Have you watched this at all? I've watched a little bit of it. I watch it every time this this conversation sort of trickles up. It's a good show. It's a good show. It's very Hard Mm Knocks-y, I think, with the interesting exception that on Hard Knocks, because it's about one team, you may get like one position battle a season where the two guys are frenemies and have this kind of interesting relationship. Mm -hmm. On Drive to Survive, Everybody is a frenemy, even the people who are on the same racing team. Mm -hmm. They're all competing with each other. So there's just a lot more drama and a lot more. But it did such a great job of pulling out the personalities and creating it. And to me, that did two things for the sport. One is it just explained to people who knew nothing about Formula One. And I should put myself and you in that category, certainly, right? Mm -hmm. Knew nothing like here is what it is. Here's who the people are. Here's what the rivalries are. Great. I can watch a show and I can understand it. But the other thing it did that's really interesting is to me, it repackaged the sport as a reality show. Yeah. So if I told you, hey, dude, we're going to do a ringer podcast and, you know, a bunch of local sports radio segments on auto racing. You'd be like, okay, Mm -hmm. see how that goes. But. But if I told you we're going to do a ringer pod and a bunch of sports radio segments on a Netflix reality show. Ah, ah, yeah. that makes sense. That's the kind of stuff we already do segments about. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was such a huge step. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned hard knocks and that's definitely, you know, a significant, you know, antecedent or whatever to this. Uh, obviously, Netflix itself has had a lot of luck with last chance use of the world you know that sort of thing to me i think the real precursor is the ultimate fighter because it it introduced it reintroduced the ufc to the world i mean it, the the 
you know, you can track just popularity and ratings through the first couple of seasons of that show. And just it saw the sport skyrocket. But it also, like you said, made it a reality show. It wasn't just some subset. It wasn't one team where you're looking into the background. It wasn't just, you know, Last Chance You is sort of like a little piece of the world that, that's sort of supposed to represent, supposed to be emblematic of the bigger sport, sport at large. I mean, the UFC just kind of built halfway built itself to the ultimate fighter that's where all the you know and i mean they had promising up-and-comers that would they would just sort of shoehorn into the show to get them that sort of popularity to get them that you know to get the fans to know them and, and to understand them and now the whole the the ufc sort of overall is is uh has a lot of the remnants of that reality show package right i mean just the way that the the actual show i mean the actual sport presents itself um it's a really smart move because because even if you can point at that show, you can point at you know, uh, you can point at a million different reality shows that have that have come. But the but the but this is a real achievement, I think. With even separate from the things you know, the, the shows that have come before it, I'm not saying it's necessarily like good or bad. I certainly don't think it's you know a force for, a force of evil or anything like that. But you know, we've had a lot of conversations on this show about how streaming how over the top how cord cutting is has is has affected and will continue to affect professional sports and i don't think any of us really thought netflix is gonna figure out a way to do a reality show that's going to be the most significant thing in the way that we watch sports in the modern world i mean as far as the way that things have changed it's it's really amazing and what's interesting is we've seen Amazon and Apple, Netflix's competitors say, hey, we're going to go buy sports rights. Mm -hmm. We're going to get Thursday Night Football, baseball, all that stuff. Netflix has not really been in that game yet, but they're like, we're going to create a reality show that is kind of shoulder programming to sports. Mm -hmm. And maybe a lot of the times even more interesting than the race you're about to watch. Well, that's just it. You can make... <laughs> I mean, Formula One might be sort of unique in this regard, at least compared to some other, you know, mainstream sports. But you can definitely see the argument for, I mean, you we both we all understand why sports rights, live sports rights are super valuable, right? There are very few things that are just like that magnetic that are broadcast, you know, that you have to go watch live, that you have to watch, you know, if you yep. want to be in, in, in the conversation. Mm -hmm. But if you have something like, you know, if you have like the foundational reality show as silly as it is to say about it that every time there's a big race that someone else owns like you're only going to watch that race once you know you might watch the highlights again but you might that might inspire you to go back and rewatch season one on netflix right i mean it's 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 going to be the it has the potential to sort of be an endlessly renewable resource for them it's been a big increase in viewership of the races and ticket sales for the american races since the show started michael bauman wrote a really good piece about this uh, recently in the ringer highly recommend that he talked about something funny it was in the first season in 2019 the top teams didn't want to participate in drive to survive because they're like we don't we think this is kind of invasive or we have a lot to lose by doing this so we're not doing it so what the show did by necessity was tell you about all the teams michael writes that are in the middle of the standings and that's interesting too because sometimes the championship in F1 or an individual race is just not that interesting. But, oh, 
I'm interested in this fourth and fifth, this fourth, fifth place, you know, let me do that one more time. I'm interested in what's down the list because that's a great story that I know about. I know who those people are. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of accidentally ingenious as well. Well, yeah, we see you see that kind of thing over and over again. Of course, the people that are going to you understand why the middle tier, you know, teams are the ones that are more willing to do it. And then, but the, you know, when when it starts to succeed, then everybody wants in. That's not something that's unique to racing or to sports or to reality television or to anything else, right? I mean, that it, it, it's it's pretty straightforward. But you know, it does it is it, it it's it's a great it's a it's a really interesting way to 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 package the sport, right? Because you get you, if you had had carte blanche from the beginning, you know, you probably wouldn't have started with the mid tier, the lower tier teams. Right. And this, and this sort of like opens up the door to let people sort of get it. It was sort of a backdoor entrance. And then, then, you know, and now people can be exposed to the entire thing. It's, I mean, it's really, even in theory, it's a brilliant thing that like every sport should do. I don't know that it would be this successful. I don't know that there'd be even be the room for the sort of success in the more mainstream American sports, but man, it's, it's appealing, you know, it's, 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 it's seductive. Yeah. And seductive is a great word because guess what? This is co-produced by formula one. This is an ad for formula one. Mm -hmm. That's what this is do. I feel like we all are in this uncanny Valley now when it comes to sports documentaries where we really don't know what is a documentary per se. Yeah. And what is a documentary like object that is <laughs> produced by the thing. <laughs> this is the second thing. Yeah. Right. So its job is, on the one hand, to create this really interesting series and cool characters and lots of drama and stuff like that. But really, its job is to get you to watch Formula One, mm -hmm. to be a fan of Formula One. Yeah. And on that, obviously, it's succeeding. By the way, Netflix announced they're going to do these for golf and tennis. Right. And that got me thinking something interesting. Is it Formula One? that we are all responding to here, David, the sport, or if Netflix co-produces a really interesting, a really exciting documentary about a sport that's not right in the, you know, middle of the vision for most Americans, would we just like that? Would any sport get a bump from something um, like this? I think that there has to be some legitimacy at the base, right? There has to be some sort of seriousness undergirding the whole thing. You know, if you had like the equivalent of like the Tiger King, but it was about roller derby, I find it hard to imagine that the ringer would have a roller derby vertical, despite the fact that we might ironically watch one or two events as a yeah. group, you know? I don't know. Um, I don't know. We have a whole wrestling vertical over there, man. You I'm know, not. We're, we're, I, well, I have slicing. We're slicing it thin well, <laughs> here, you know? <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. No, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine like, what something that people weren't necessarily paying a lot of attention to. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, for, you want to talk about wrestling. I mean, it's, it's been even just the, the total divas and total Bella's reality shows. Like I've never, I've watched a total of like 45 minutes of, you know, over multiple seasons has done, that's done great stuff for like recruiting new audiences to WWE. And they will be, they're very open about it. You know, um, there, there is, there's definitely some people that are going to come over, but, um, whether or not it's gonna, you know, we're gonna see the same sort of result with tennis and golf. I mean, listen, tennis and golf have a lot of, a lot of, well, I don't know if upside's the right word, but like, there's certainly a lot of room to grow, right? I mean, yes. from where they are. I do think that at the end of the day, you got to have some sort of like, 
hunger for that growth potential, right? You have to want to get bigger, not maybe not at, all, at any and all costs, but you have to, but that has to be the priority. The sport, because, the sport you're talking about wants yeah, to get bigger? Yeah, the sport. And also there's, listen, there's an answer, there's a parallel argument about how much power the sport has over its competitors, right? Which is diff- obviously different from sport to sport. And I think that it's pretty self-evident that like this would be hardest in basketball, harder in basketball than in any other sport because the, you know, because every, Every you know highly paid player would just have the have the ability to say no thanks, or at least would certainly have the ability to say no thanks to like any significant revelation, you know, anything, any any like, but they they could definitely say no thanks to saying anything interesting in front of a microphone. But part of, so and because part of the deal is you got to be willing to kind of be a heel, you got to be willing to sort of like show some ass or whatever, you know. It's like you, you got to be you have to be interesting. And for a lot of people, this is not ex- exclusive to sports again, but for a lot of people, being interesting is dangerous, right? Or, or it's, it seems it's an unnecessary risk. And, um, you know, for, 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 so the sport has to be willing to take that minor risk at the, I mean, and, and at the, you know, to, to trade in for potential growth. Golf, tennis, like, yeah, that would be a, a really like, I mean, those, I feel like the risk would be justified for both of those sports, just like it was in Formula One. Yeah, I feel golf is sort of right there because we're in this moment of big rivalries and certain names that you and I, people like you and I would certainly know. We've certainly seen them, but we haven't just locked in on them like a lot of people who are a little more in that world. Yep. So it's all sitting out there. I think the NBA analogy is fascinating because you're right. Maybe... LeBron and KD and a bunch of other people who either have other things going on or just don't want to be a part of this, it's a cross-off. But how many people would you just have to get for it to be interesting? I don't think it's that many, right? Mm -hmm. It's complicated because there's lots of teams and lots of players, which is different from Formula One and even golf. But I don't think you'd have to get that many for it to be interesting. Oh, no, not for it to be interesting. I mean, the interesting thing would be I mean, imagine if they had done that during the bubble. That would have been like that would have been the best chance to do it, right? Everybody's oh. in one place, they're interacting, and it's on and off the court. Like you know, there's a lot of there'd be a lot of opportunity there. The NBA, it's just like a traveling. It's like a road show, and you only have a maximum like thirty interesting people in one place at one time, which is not nothing, but whatever. You know, the interesting thing wouldn't just be like, would could they do it without the stars? They could do it without the stars. They released you know, super tech mobile without any quarterbacks. They, you know, <laughs> we we. <laughs> This is a thing that we could do, but but at the same, but it'd be interesting to see if it really got popular. Would the stars be interested? Would they be willing to sort of like, you know, take one and take the, take the L and, and ask to be on the show for you know in the future? You know, it's like it's crazy to think how many like actual celebrities, athletes included, have just like willingly entered the like card keeping up with the Kardashians orbit for the for the like implicit PR bump that that would give them mm-hmm. right when you would just think like no way like there's no way that you would I, but yeah I mean people will do it because it's once it's established to be popular and beneficial um you know people are willing to play the heel a little bit or just like play a character when you see media members and fans and media fans start spending time on Formula One mm-hmm. do we think that's because we are kind of dropping or half dropping a sport like baseball out of our rotation. And all of a sudden we have more time or do we all just have way more bandwidth than maybe people think we do. And we can just add on something else 
at the at a moment's notice? Um, it's a good question. You're sort of referencing like the old Simmons idea that like you only have what was it only four national sports or whatever or that like or that the 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 it, real world road rules challenge had like leapfrogged hockey at some point as the <laughs> fourth major sport. I think um, I have about four. And then I, I have that, stuff that I can watch and really enjoy. But I think that I think that sadly the, that the challenge the challenge has relinquished the title. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's insurgent <laughs> national sport. Um, yeah, I do think that there's room to discuss. You know, there's room to think and talk and 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 have conversations about sports, and that certainly does at some point come at the detriment of another sport. Um, but also, I think that there's a little bit of like a, I mean, maybe counterintuitively, there it's it sort of goes the other way too. There's so much sports conversation that happens. I mean, just the NFL alone drives so much of our annual conversation, as we always talk about, that at any moment that Matt Ryan's not getting traded, like you're thirsty to have some conversation about something sports related, right? And so it's sort of like there's this, just the chat room is open for sports talk. You know, and, and totally. people are always looking for new things to fill the void. Yeah. There's always Tuesday. And, you yeah. know, Tuesday during the NFL season may be spoken for, but maybe Wednesday isn't. It's the reason Kevin's podcast is called, or Kevin's show is called Slow News Day, right? There are these little gaps. And I think you're right. In, in when, for the people that make content, whether they're people that work at The Ringer or whether they're people doing sports radio and need to fill that run sheet every day, there are little ways to get in. And by the way, this is not, to me, this isn't all that different from the way I feel about like college basketball right now. I spent a lot of this weekend watching college basketball. I'd not pay a lot of attention to that during the season. I really didn't. Didn't watch much. Mm -mm. But you do have those sports where you can kind of come in on them and be like, oh, okay. This is not my, this is not right at the front of my brain, but it's in the kind of four or five slot for me. Yeah. And when I see it, I and, get happy and I perk up and I'm interested. And to sort of reiterate the point I made before, if you don't have time to be hyper invested in, in, in a sport or like, you know, in March Madness, if you, you know, accidentally had didn't realize it, but you had like a big family birthday party that took up a lot of your weekend like I did, you know, it's you, you can kind of feel like you're out of the loop so quickly that. I, like I said, you understand the value of live sports, but you also understand the value of like something you can just push play and pause on whenever you want, you know, and, and that's there's it, it's nice to have that option. Was watching the race on Sunday morning in Bahrain. Uh, first of all, David Croft, who is the lead commentator, also mm -hmm. known as Crofty, was great fun. He had this whole open that I, I swear set the world record for segues. You know, it was like mm -hmm. da 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 da. And there is, and it's as good as a rest, but there is no rest for the weary. I mean, he's just tying the sentences together in ways I'd never heard a commentator do. Kind of amazing. <laughs> Tons of Britishisms during the race, David. Come a cropper, a uh, little bit of a kerfuffle going on. Sort that one out, ladies and gentlemen. And he is as keen as they come. <laughs> Were some of my favorites. Also, and auto racing has done this for quite a while. But the radio from the car where you can hear the driver talking to the crew. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. And during the race on Sunday, they all seem to be so clipped. I really have zero traction, the driver says. Understood, Max, his team says. That was a really <laughs> early stop, the driver says. Copy that, Lewis. 
his team says. Fantastic. Fantastic element. <laughs> also, I may have mentioned this one once before. We'll leave it here. Remember when soccer was becoming a big sport for Americans now more than a decade ago? Oh, yeah. I remember it very well. And by the way, a lot of overlap between Formula One fandom and soccer fandom. <laughs> Not only in the way it is conquering America, but the same people conquering the same people. Leave that sure. for another time. But do you remember how there were those kind of older sports columnists who were like, I don't like this mm -hmm. because I'm a football, baseball, basketball, maybe hockey person. And I don't like this. And they were kind of the soccer troll in America. Yes, I remember that very well. Yeah, I think there's a big opening for the F1 troll. Oh, gosh. Right. Who's going to who's going to do that? Well, I have two nominees right here. Because remember, that was always kind of an older sports columnist, you know, a decade plus ago. We were like, oh, look at that guy. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a you know, crabby and can't uh, can't abide soccer coming into America. Well, David, look in the mirror and I'll do the <laughs> same. We, we might be there. Should we do it? I, I kind of think so. Just and the thing is, you just constantly say that Formula One is boring. Like, oh, yeah, this is boring. Eh, no action. Eh, Who would be the best one pass? All, Come on. Yeah. Probably too easy, too early for Kevin Clark to turn heel on this sport. <laughs> Although he, 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 I think so. I yeah. remember. By the way, I don't know how. I don't know if this is a, if this undercuts Kevin Clark or, the, or, the, or if this shows how much foresight he has. I remember years ago in the early days of the Ringer, him coming into my office and and just leaning against the wall and being like, "So Shoemaker, you want to be an F one fan with me?" And that and I was just like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "I'm going to get into Formula One. I think it's a cool thing to get into." And I was like, "I don't. Wow." And now look where he is. I can totally confirm that he was he was ahead of the game. He really was. Um, I will. What would be the maybe? You know what? You should you should just it's people driving cars, right? So like, what's the opposite? It would be actually like running, or maybe get like Lance Armstrong for someone who actually had to use his legs to go on his races. Just be like, let let's let's hire him to be the Formula One troll. <laughs> Don't you think angry Lance Armstrong? Yeah, you can say, say what you want to about me, but I didn't have any electric. I didn't. I didn't have any gasoline running. Well, maybe you did. Never mind. Maybe we'll, <laughs> maybe we can find a runner. <laughs> We're going to table that for a moment to do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, David, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they are always, always gratefully received. Uh, this week's winner, David, comes from listener Marissa who refers us to an item in Rolling Stone. Uh, according to the magazine, reggaeton icon Daddy Yankee mm -hmm. has announced that he's retiring from music. It's an overworked Twitter joke to write, Daddy Yankee simply ran out of gasolina. <laughs> we would have also accepted he's retiring during the gasolina crisis. You submitted something that only tangentially has to do with grim world events. Thank you, and congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David. Uh, from the Department of Subtweeting, I bring you last week's New York Times editorial, which had the headline, America has a free speech problem. Yeah. We talked about what Twitter looked like uh, during the racing over the weekend. What did Twitter look like when that came out? Oh, my gosh. We've probably talked about this phenomenon before, but it needs a name. What is a phenomenon for when you 
open up Twitter and you see like 50 tweets on a subject before you really have any grasp of what it is that people are talking about. It's all subtweets. Like nobody, well, I guess some people are linking back to it eventually, but I was just like, I was, I could have, I could have probably written the op-ed as well as or better than it was written in the New York Times before I realized it was a New York Times editorial. I was just like, because <laughs> I, I, by the time I realized what it was, it was so, it, I don't know, what a weird sensation. But also what a weird, weird column. Uh, I, first of all, I, there's so many first of all, I don't even know where to begin, but I'll begin with today. I was wanted to make sure I was like slightly well versed on this conversation. So I was like Googling around, like, you know, looking around at Google to see what people had written about it. There's basically just an equal number of of response columns. And again, this is, you know, actual columns or website posts, not just Twitter, not just tweets. But there are about an equal number of people who are saying that they're that the you know the new york times op-ed op-ed page has a constitutional co comprehension problem like that was the sort of like argument yep. from the left and the argument for the right was just new york times admits that we have a speak <laughs> free speech problem as if that was the sort of waving the white flag on behalf of the entire leftist establishment um even the liberal new york times must admit yeah well, it's like we're, it's like they're pulling back the curtain. It's not like, well, I'll I'll grant you this point of the argument. It was just like, fine, like they're just telling us a thing we all know to be true. Um, it's anytime you can kind of strike that you can just <laughs> anytime you can just get everybody to totally misread or misunderstand what you just presumed your point to be, then congratulations, you just had a really bad, you know, <laughs> a really bad opinion piece. But I mean, I don't even know what to say about it. It's it just seems so. It's like he it's like they just missed the point in so many ways. And everybody that kind of made jokes about it was so right that it just got real boring and obvious to talk about it. So like immediately. What, what, what was what was your experience reading it? I think my question is, why are we still doing staff editorials like this? Like, I have no idea. Like, what's the point? Like, why I mean, wouldn't this just be assigned to like if you if you really thought you'd write a piece about this, why wouldn't you assign it to two writers and put their names on it? rather than having it speak for the paper. Because I understand, I understand this is newspapers have done this forever. Newspaper proprietors have enjoyed using their newspaper to push forward their ideas, popular or unpopular. I get that, but I don't understand like what's, why wouldn't you just assign a couple of people and just write a piece about this? Yeah. I like they, there was a line in it too that said, the editorial board plans to identify a wide range of threats to freedom of speech in the coming months and to offer possible solutions. I just find that to be so strange. Like the staff is going to do this. Like, why can't a person do this or persons do this? Well, would the obvious answer be because we have such a free speech problem that we don't, we don't want to force any of our writers to open themselves up to such criticism. Mm. I don't know. But here's the thing. Those writers can argue back. I mean, I know that sort of goes to the entire That's argument. That's what it means, yes, right? Or somebody yeah. at the New York Times who works for the New York Times, a reporter, and says, I don't like this, can at least say, well, this is this person's opinion rather than the opinion of the editorial board of the newspaper, and by extension, the whole newspaper itself. Listen, I don't want to say that like you're not allowed to publish things that are potentially incorrect or problematic under the under just the banner of the New York Times. There'd be no reason to put that sort of condition on any publication at all. But it really does make it difficult when 
an unsigned opinion piece gets such gets things wrong to such a degree that like if this were a column and this were you know david brooks or somebody writing it then like you would expect that their next piece would be a follow-up that addressed some of the criticism right but you can't really have like they're not going to do like the new york times addresses criticism of its unsigned opinion piece that's the because, i mean that, that, that you do whatever you want but you got to understand that like the pieces like this I mean, this this it's there, it's a joke in so many ways. I don't want to overblow it, but like, whatever process led to this is the same process that's going to lead to like their next presidential endorsement, <laughs> right? So I mean, like, what is, what is, what's the what's the system here? We can skip that too. By the way, most interesting part of that was when it was on the New York Times reality show, when they yeah. were bringing all the presidents into the office. The actual endorsement, everybody just went like, eh, oh well, you know, this this isn't important to me. Yeah, you know, you know, I always talk about like, don't ever criticize the media, the quote unquote media, mm -hmm. because the media can't fight back. <laughs> right. I criticize the media. Who's who's going to take exception to that? Because nobody knows who's being criticized. This right. is the same thing. As you point mm -hmm. out, the New York Times can't fight back because who is going to do the fighting back? It's yeah, just, it's I don't it, get it. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it either. I mean, it's it, it just. At, at the very, I mean, to take the problem, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much we really need to 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 address like the actual substance, such as it was of the piece, but the core, I mean, it just the argument that it made was just so flimsy, right? And the idea that like that like you know the editors of a newspaper, in particular, or the op-ed page or whatever, are under such like un, such an undue amount of scrutiny. I mean, all the people that are complaining about this are people whose jobs are to be scrutinized, right? Whose jobs are to make arguments and then implicitly to get response to those arguments. It does seem like the biggest change that's been made, I mean, that's, that's occurred over the past decade is just the direct connection that your audience has to you, the writer, right? And, and, and by the way, that's optional. You don't have to have a Twitter account. You don't have to like check out your mentions, you know? I mean, it's just, it, you open up this sort of, line of communication to the cosmos because it helps you it you know because it's a, it's a, it is a it's a benefit to your career in a lot of ways and then people you know sometimes you're just going to be the thing that people latch on to to like get mad about one day it seems like a pretty straightforward trade-off and it doesn't seem like the first <laughs> i mean listen the first amendment aspect of it too i mean i love that i i love that just that like free speech has just been misinterpreted so dramatically for so many years that places like the New York Times have just sort of given up on correcting people about like what it be. It's, it's the it's only about the government. It's only about the government controlling what you can say. People just these institutions have given up on correcting that. And now they're coming in like 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 the like the journalism Supreme Court trying to trying to rule by the spirit of the law. You know, <laughs> it's just like right. oh, it's just free speech, the greater ideal. Like, no, nobody really. No, this is not a thing. It's so yeah. bizarre. And they're trying to do both in this editorial, by the way. Yeah. Talk about government censorship of speech, but also mm -hmm. talk about just like people. What do they call it? Shaming or shunning people who say something unpopular. Yeah. To which one of the responses was. But what about the people who are shaming? Don't they have free speech too? Aren't we protecting their right to say what they want? And by the way, I spent a good portion of this weekend in, I think, what we could pretty reasonably be described as Trump country. And 
I, th- I had a lot of political conversation with people that I wasn't looking for, and they, they I, nobody had any qualms about saying something uh, when, when it, you know, politically incorrect or not at any point in time. I, I just think it's a pretty, pretty narrow, pretty cloistered point of view when you're when that's what you have to complain about. Let's say a word or two, David, about John Clayton. NFL reporter who died after what was described as a short illness at age 67 over the weekend. Clayton was a reporter for newspapers in Pittsburgh and Tacoma, Washington, and of course at ESPN, where he started contributing in 1995. Where do we start remembering John Clayton? Oh, man. I mean, I feel like every six months or so, we're talking about somebody who is just sort of like the institution of institutions at ESPN. Um, and you can make the case a lot of different ways, but I don't know if there was anybody connected to any sport that sort of felt like he was made up so much of the sort of ether of of the sport of of sports journalism or that genre of, of of writing than than John Clayton was. I mean, he was just of a piece with NFL reportage, you know, before there were insiders on every pregame show or whatever it was just it, it was john clayton and he he was just you know one of a kind in so many ways i will say this as a compliment to a bunch of them but i think there are people that felt the same way to their various sports like tim kirchin oh yeah chris mortensen in the nfl like when we're talking about that sort of espn reporter starting in the 80s and 90s aspect of it that just felt as you say of a piece that were information people, but information people in the sense that there was this kind of just deep reporting and interest in something more than just what we would now consider to be information, which is breaking signings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And part of this is the era, right? Because if you watch Sports Center in the 90s, and I know that you did, you'd see this update from John Clayton about other teams in the NFL, like the Bengals linebackers or, you know, quarterback situation in another, with another team, you did not, in many cases, know that stuff at all. Yeah. And this is way before that kind of information was easy to get. So there was just this almost miraculous aspect of like, oh, wow. <laughs> it didn't have to be, you know, the quarter, you know, Matt Ryan has just been traded to Indianapolis. It was just kind of a more subtle, deeper reporting about the nfl and that was kind of an early sort of phase of insight i thought that was always so interesting uh dave bowling had a great tribute to clayton in the washington post uh it says he called everybody big guy which i thought was really funny uh he's from pennsylvania went to steelers games with his mom bowling right starting at age six started covering the team when he was in high school uh was a reporter in Pittsburgh for a while, then went to the Seattle area at the Tacoma News Tribune, 1986. This is funny from Bowling. Uh, Seattle reporters turned his surname into a verb when we saw how often he would sprint. Just try to picture, by the way, John Clayton sprinting right now from the Seahawks media room into the parking lot to track down a coach or team executive. When one tried pulling away in his car, as Clayton ran alongside shouting questions, we called it being Claytoned. <laughs> That's how tenacious a reporter he was. Uh, Bowling also notes that he met his wife, Pat, at that paper in Tacoma and cared for her while she dealt with MS. Uh, Clayton gets to ESPN, David, 1995, as I mentioned. 
steady presence doing those notes on Sports Center. He does that famous This is Sports Center ad. Oh, he loved that. Yeah. He was wearing the Slayer t shirt. Mm hmm. Has the long hair, which is really funny. I saw a YouTube clip today. It was like somebody from Slayer responding to John Clayton's ad. <laughs> oh my gosh. Which I sadly do not have audio of at this moment. Um, don't you, do you remember when ESPN sort of, you know, kind of stumbled into the embrace debate era? And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. John Clayton and Sean Salisbury were doing that Sports Center bit where they were arguing with each other. Oh, yeah. In incredibly personal terms. And John totally Clayton like, you were just existed, a backup yeah. quarterback. You don't know anything about that. <laughs> and Salisbury would be like, you've never played football. And just they would, ju they would just use that to discount each other's opinions every time. Mm -hmm. ESPN, their editorial, or their little piece about uh, Clayton said it was classic television. I would... I would like to gently push back on that idea. No offense to John Clayton. <laughs> also, uh, it was not said too much in the tributes over the weekend, but Clayton was one of the people who got laid off from ESPN in 2017. Oh, yeah. Continued doing some local uh, ESPN radio up there in Seattle. It is, it is worth pointing out here that that was a gutting layoff for ESPN. Mm -hmm. A really gutting layoff. That's the same one when Jason Stark left the company and all these people. Mm -hmm. And it was just, to me, that was the one when, when somehow when John Clayton's not working there anymore, ESPN just felt like a different company. Yeah. It's like this, this era of us having all these people, people we like people who are, we like because they're part of the identity of the company, because they're really good about what they do and what they care about. They do. We're just entering a new phase. Still going to have lots of good people. It's not like everybody here is going to suck. But we're just not going to have that kind of bandwidth that we used to have. Yeah. It really was. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's also not a, I mean, when you're a company that's so invested in, in you know, the brand being the star over the people at this point, right? Which is fine. It's, you know, that could, you, you're, you can do that. Um, but it doesn't give your employees a lot of confidence in, you know, long-term employment. And it doesn't give them a lot of, you know, internal morale. and just a little thing like letting John Clayton go is like just, it just, you know, it just reinforces that so much, right? If someone like John Clayton can't count on lifetime employment for all he's meant to the sport and to the, and to the, the network, then like, you know, why on earth would you be entertaining, you know, your next contract there if they're not going to pay you as much, they're trying to talk about their, your future there or whatever. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's just, it's a huge morale problem. Yeah. Different company. Uh, Joe Buck, David, we talked about in the podcast last week, leaving Fox for ESPN. Well, he said goodbye to Fox in an unusual way. Turns out <laughs> Joe Buck's goodbye was not the 49ers Rams NFC championship game. It was competing in the mass singer as a Ram. Not the Super Bowl Rams, but like actually a Ram suit. He was competing against somebody dressed as a firefly. I hope I'm getting this right. Uh, Buck was eliminated after singing Take Me Home Country Roads. By the way, both judges Robin Thicke and Eric Stone Street figured out that it was, in fact, Joe Buck under the ram suit before he took it off. Here is a little bit of uh, Joe Buck's musical goodbye on Fox.
Not bad. Oh, well, kind of bad. Not, I mean, you know, I guess not that bad. Uh, another little. Uh, it sounded like it sounded like Joe Buck. It did. Yeah, but he was he was not a bad singer. No, I'm just saying I can understand why they they realized it was Joe Buck. But you know, anybody that's going to go out there and belt cheap trick, it's got my respect. <laughs> you and I have talked before, David, about Zombie ESPN magazine. <laughs> yeah. No longer appears regularly in print, but we get the special issue. There was a John Madden one uh, after he died earlier. Now there's one called Tom Brady, the greatest of all time on newsstands. I saw this. Yeah, Which has a little thing on the cover that says, Re plus retiring as the best. Well, Tom Brady, of course, has unretired. And our listener, Todd Bishop, says, uh, did the magazine, magazine industry learn anything from the Betty White debacle? Apparently not. <laughs> I have a question about Tom Brady, though. Okay. Well, well, we, let's just say that he plays for like 10 more years. And it's like <laughs> the last nine of them are just the worst years ever posted by a quarterback in the modern in modern NFL history, right? Go okay. ahead. Are we still allowed like 20 years from now to say he retired at the top of the game? <laughs> he, re <laughs> he was when he retired, he was the best quarterback in the league. Just and just you know, just kind of segment off the fact that he then unretired and was terrible. Oh, so we like marketed. I think we kind of did that with Jordan, didn't we? I think people are yeah, we kind of did. You say, yeah, he retired. He when he retired, he he walked out the door, the best player in the league. And yeah. then he walked back in. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think that kind of works. I think that kind of works. Uh, last one for you here. We have talked about the Ben Smith new media venture. Uh-huh. It was described in exceedingly vague terms when Ben Smith first left the New York Times. He's doing this with Justin Smith. He used to be at Bloomberg Media. And Justin Smith said something the other day, and I believe this was during uh, a seminar, an online seminar, according to the New York Times, about what the media venture is going to be. And this is what he said. The era of the foreign correspondent is over. What? The era of the foreign correspondent is over. And what he means is, look, we're doing this very old system of having these people, let's say, from the United States, for an American media company that are from here, that we send abroad to try to report. Why don't we find the best reporters who are people who are from there and already live there? And why don't we get them to report for us instead okay. of doing this outdated system? But it was so interesting to me because the New York Times story about this was called the era of the foreign correspondent is over. And I thought, David, there's a very, very thin line between starting a new media company, as Ben Smith is doing, and pitching a column for the New York Times. Like the era of the foreign correspondent is over could be both. Yeah. And that could have been kind of a slow week one for Ben. Sure. And and this is interesting, right? Because like, is every new media company just a think piece that then attracts <laughs> investors and then you have to execute? Have we been doing this all wrong? You and I have written a lot of think pieces. We should just have that. The, the think piece is just, yeah, is, is the, is the, Proof of concept, right? Look, I could just have one. I could have a thousand of these a day and imagine the attention we would get. Absolutely. And this is a good think piece because what does the think piece need? It needs a billboard sentiment, mm -hmm. right? When I'm sending one of those pitches to my editors, you better believe I have that billboard sentence so they can be like, ah, yep, that's the headline. That's the way we're going to sell this on Twitter. 
So it's got the billboard sentence. Also, David, important for a for a think piece, something is ending. The era of the foreign correspondent is over. If you can mark the ending of a thing, you're going to get that piece commissioned. Yeah, it's true. And it's if it's true. if it's kind of ending but not really ending, David, the twilight of the foreign correspondent. <laughs> that also gets you over the fence. That's why that has a little bit more drama. Yeah, that's true. Right? Because if, if somebody can name like two or three exceptions, hey, the twilight. Get a commission and, and get billions of dollars for your media company, folks. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Yeah. Thursday's headline about the side effects of high gas prices was fuel be sorry. Today's headline, David, comes from Chris Brodeur. It's from the Reading, Pennsylvania Eagle. Penn State, like most other colleges, are doing spring practice. And you can learn a lot of things about a football team from spring practice. I'll spot you the word spring here and warn you, this is very strained. Very, very strained. Things you can learn from spring practice. What was the Reading Eagles strain punt headline? Quick sidebar. This is not the same Christopher Brodeur that was our neighbor for no. a while in the Lower East Side who ran <laughs> You were from... going to ask that. No. <laughs> different... Uh... Different person that, here. That was Christopher X. Brodeur, sorry, former mayoral candidate and um, sometime occupant of Rikers Island. Uh, wait, you're going to have to start over. It's about spring training what? Uh, it's about spring practice. Penn State oh, spring, spring practice. practice. Okay. And that's it? Spring? What we can learn from spring practice. Spring to mind? Spring to... Uh, springing, spring to... Uh, Very strange. What what's what's the famous thing we do during spring? Spring. What's the famous thing we we intend to do? A thing we do or intend to do during spring? Spring. Spring cleaning. Spring gleaning. Spring Spring gleaning. Gleaning is the answer. Spring gleaning. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Stefan Anderson sitting in for Erica Shoemaker and I back Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.